What's up, you beautiful bastards? Welcome back to The Philip DeFranco Show. It is Wednesday, February 10th, 2021. Hit that like button, otherwise we'll punch you in the throat and let's just jump into the news of the day so you can get back to yours. And actually, first thing today, if you didn't know it was coming, Belle Delphine, that sounded weird. I, what I'm trying to say, my podcast, A Conversation with Philip DeFranco is back and my guest, Belle Delphine, uh, the video just went up today. So after today's show, go watch it. If you're not subscribed to the channel already, do it. We talk about her childhood, her family, marketing, OnlyFans money, what it's like being her. And I trended on Twitter because of how bad I gave it. <laughs> <laughs> but give it a watch. It is definitely worth the price of admission, though it is free. The only thing it costs you is your time and maybe sanity. But uh, the first thing we're gonna talk about today is Zoom Cat Lawyer. By chance, you've maybe seen it number one trending on YouTube. And so the way this story starts is, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so there's this civil forfeiture case hearing that's happening on Zoom. And it's your kind of run-of-the-mill, everyday hearing, but uh, Rod Ponton, a county attorney in Presidio County, Texas, uh, had a problem. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to uh, uh, take, take We're a trying look. to, we're tr can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's, I'm here live. It's not, I'm not a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Or is that exactly what a cat would say, Rod? You can't be a county attorney, Rod, you're a kitty cat. What do kitty cats know about civil forfeiture, Rod? Right, so understandably, this video goes viral. Like I said, it's the number one trending on YouTube. I think on Twitter, at the, while I'm recording, it has 28.5 plus million views, and that's just one of the videos. But like almost always happens, after someone or something goes viral, people start digging, other people that you don't know about start talking. And in this instance, one of those people was Anthony L. Fisher. He's an opinion columnist for Insider and Business Insider, and he tweeted, funny story about Rod Pont and the Zoom cat lawyer that everyone's talking about today. I reported on him in 2014 when he was a local prosecutor and he used the power of his office and roped in federal law enforcement to harass a former lover. With him going on to say, I had read about a violent militarized raid on a small Texas college town's head shop. The shop's owner was forced to sign an incriminating statement before she could post bond. I spent months reporting out this story as a written feature in a video doc. Every stone unturned was creepier than the last. I went down to Texas where Ponton said he would give me an interview before reneging, but it was a small town and everyone knew what happened. TLDR, Ponson was briefly sexually involved with a woman who ran the head shop, he denies this, and then saying during his time as DA, local and federal cops repeatedly tried to bust her for selling illegal synthetic marijuana. They never found any. So, you know, I guess this is in part why we can't have nice things. Everything looks like gold before you take a closer look. But that said, because I don't know the full details of the allegations and everything that happened with this Fisher story, where I'll end this story is just to anyone that is making shows right now, I will watch a TV show with a cat lawyer. Know that, Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, or whoever. Thousand percent, I'll watch that. Then in social media and app news, we have a few things. First, we had Instagram essentially saying they don't feel comfortable being your side piece, saying they'll no longer promote videos from TikTok on users' Reels feeds. Right after Instagram essentially copy-pasted TikTok and created Reels, a lot of people just took their TikToks, which are easy to download, and posted them over on Instagram. But also, Instagram announced this, kind of like how I, as a father, uh, discipline or or corral my children with, with something that I know that they're not gonna like. They phrase this change as if they were doing us a favor, saying we've heard also kind of the YouTube equivalent of a lot of people have been asking me. No one was asking you about that. Stop lying, Greg. But they said, we've heard that low video quality reels, i.e. blurry due to low resolution or 
Content that is visibly recycled from other apps makes the Reels experience less satisfying. So we're making this content less discoverable in places like the Reels tab. Right, so essentially this is Instagram sitting you down and saying, okay, what are we? Put a label on it. We had fun and games and whatever happened in the past happened in the past but now is the time. Also, actually on the note of TikTok, the sale of TikTok to Oracle and Walmart has been shelled. This is according to a new report from the Wall Street Journal. And uh, as President Joe Biden takes a broader review of the Trump administration's efforts to address security risks from Chinese tech companies. As you might remember, this potential sale first came about after former President Donald Trump threatened to ban TikTok if its American operations were not transferred from ByteDance, which is a Chinese company to an American one. Trump there, of course, claimed that the app was a national security risk. Meanwhile, ByteDance claimed that it hadn't sent any form of American user data to the Chinese government, claiming that US user data was actually stored outside of China. And so under Biden, data security discussions between ByteDance and the US national security officials have continued. However, with now no imminent decision on the table, any deal that happens will probably look substantially different than those Trump pushed for. In fact, one discussion involves bringing in a quote, trusted third party to manage the US side of TikTok's data. And notably, that would essentially avoid a sale. So as far as what happens next year, next week, the government's formal response to TikTok's legal challenges brought by a Trump era executive order is due. So far, the Justice Department has not said whether it will defend the order or not. Also on that note, next week, another Trump-era executive order banning U.S. transactions with China-related apps is set to go into effect. And there, as of recording, it is unclear if the Biden administration will respond by enforcing the order or if it will extend the deadline or even rescind it altogether. And then finally, we had Twitter in the news because despite so many people saying, I'm leaving Twitter. According to new reports, Twitter's daily user count increased by 5 million from Q3 to Q4 to reach a total of 192 million daily users. And for their part, Twitter cited some of their growth as stemming from its efforts to target election-related misinformation. Right, and so part of that is the argument that more than ever, people are looking for places where they can get news that they can trust. And while there's no place where everything is 100% true all the time, people are obviously paying attention to what these social networks are and are not doing. Also, interestingly enough, on the earnings call, CEO Jack Dorsey noted that 80% of the platform's user base is actually outside of the United States. With him also seemingly try to show Twitter as not just kind of a news source, saying we are a platform that is obviously much larger than any one topic or any one account. We have a global service. We are also not dependent upon just news and politics being what drives usage on Twitter. Though, uh, I will say we shouldn't discount Twitter being used as a news source. Now, one of the last polls I ran with you guys was outside of YouTube, where do you get news? With the selectable options being social networks as well as newsletters. And the top two, you had Twitter with a healthy lead followed by newsletters. Well, of course, that poll is not scientific in any nature. It's just a little snapshot of our audience. That is still a meaningful amount because you're all people that really care about the news. Then in, I mean, it's kind of celebrity news, but this is a really important issue that we should talk about news. Yeah, uh, perhaps you've noticed it's because a number of people are speaking out. You have celebrities trying to raise awareness about the horrifying uptick in hate crimes against Asian Americans since the start of the pandemic. And if this is the first that you're hearing about it, I mean, the rise in attacks has been incredibly concerning. For example, just in the three month span between March and June of last year, more than 2,100 hate incidents against Asian Americans were reported. We started seeing things like in September, the Queen's Chronicle reported that in New York City, anti-Asian hate crimes were up 1,900%. In October, we saw one in four young Asian Americans saying they experienced some form of anti-Asian hate amid COVID-19. You also had things like in January in Oakland, California, there were a string of attacks in Chinatown with one incident involving a 91-year-old man being pushed to the ground. Actually, regarding that, over the weekend, Daniel Day Kim and Daniel Wu shared footage of that incident, offering $25,000 in reward money for any information that could lead to the arrest of the perpetrator. And the two also using this incident to raise awareness about the bigger 
broader issue here. With Wu adding, we must take a stand and say no more. Actress Gemma Chan also posting about the incident, saying the community is in pain from these completely unprovoked attacks, but the crimes are too often ignored and underreported. And actually, regarding that single issue, a suspect was arrested for the attacks this week. But this has also stirred even more of a conversation, with people like Olivia Munn now writing. To simply exist as a minority in this country is seen as a protest to some. We need help amplifying the outrage. We need to feel safe in our country. We need help to be safe in our country. With Munn bringing up attacks that Asians have faced recently. Also, of note, it's not just celebrities who are drawing attention to these issues. We've seen a lot of activists and everyday people tweeting major news outlets to cover this, many of which are also tweeting these crimes out with the hashtag Asians are human, both to draw attention to the news and fight for equality, and others posting ways to start conversations and enact change. Then, in international news, we look to France, where the government is trying to answer that question of how young is too young. And what we're seeing there is that France's government is pushing to change the age of consent to 15, which may seem very low to a lot of you until you find out that they currently do not have an age of consent. Now, understand, that does not mean that sex with a 14-year-old is legal, as any sex with an under 15-year-old is still banned in the country, but the law as it stands now allows for the possibility that a child or a young teen consented to the sex, reducing the charge from rape to sexual assault. And so reportedly, under the new rule, an act of sexual penetration by an adult on a minor under 15 will be considered a rape, with the government also seeking to remove any statute of limitations relating to these acts, which very notably would remove legal hurdles that have long hampered investigations into allegations of widespread abuse by certain public figures. Figures like modeling agent Jean-Luc Brunel or that surgeon Joel Squanek. The new rules, if implemented, would also have exceptions for minors who have sex with each other, i.e. a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old who are dating. And if any of this sounds kind of familiar, this is actually the second time recently that the French government has considered changing the law. Right, three years ago, following the Me Too movement, authorities tried to enact similar legislation, but faced legal problems that eventually killed the proposal. Right, so understandably, you have many advocates very, very happy to see that this debate has been revived. Though, I, I do want to note, the proposal still has a way to go before becoming a law, but the government claims that it's intent on making it happen this time. And so with this story, I, I do want to throw a number of questions at you because I'm fascinated by your opinions in this debate. How young is too young, in your opinion, to consent? What are your thoughts on so-called Romeo-Juliet laws where you have the age of consent and two partners that are very close, but they're on opposite ends of that line? And also, if you are okay with that, at what point do you believe that the age difference should be a problem? And of course, with all of that, I'd love to know your reasoning behind those opinions. Then, we have more Myanmar updates. Of course, we've been covering this story since the military coup. One of the big questions there was, what was the US response going to be? What was the Biden administration going to say? And today, we got that answer with President Biden announcing a series of steps. This, including withholding $1 billion in Burmese government funds that are held in the United States and imposing sanctions against the military leaders behind the coup. And notably, on that last part, Biden also added that those sanctions could include individuals, family members, and most importantly, business interests. With Axios's report on this noting, Biden reiterated his call for the immediate release of ousted leader Su Chi and others detained, with Biden also emphasizing that the White House was coordinating its response with partners in Asia and members of Congress, including Senator Mitch McConnell, with Biden also saying that he was prepared to impose additional penalties. And as far as what else we could see internationally regarding Myanmar, uh, obviously the United States is not the only one out there denouncing the military coup. Right yesterday, for example, we saw New Zealand's foreign minister announcing a number of diplomatic measures. And we also now know that the UN Human Rights Rights Council will be holding a special session on Friday to discuss the situation in Myanmar, which means there is a lot of interest and focus because, I mean, special sessions require the support of one-third of the body's 47 member states. And according to NPR, 45 member states supported convening. But ultimately, that is where we are right now. I'll continue to watch and I'll continue to update you on the situation as things develop. And then let's talk about the first official day of the second impeachment trial against Donald Trump. And I'm going to go out of my way to try to make this as digestible as possible because watching this thing live makes you want to hurt yourself. The argument that this is all political 
theater is only true because there is a section of the Senate that is unwilling to convict or consider the information because they're scared they're gonna lose their seat. Trump's lawyers and House impeachment managers blah 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 about whether this was constitutional or not. With that debate ultimately ending with a 56 to 44 vote that it was constitutional mostly along party lines but you got six Republicans voting with Democrats. And then you know really the, the more significant parts of the day weren't so much the, the arguments that each team was making but rather how they made them and the reactions they got from the Senate jury. Right leading up to the trial the Democrats said that the best evidence they had was already on public record. The insurrection and Trump's incitement of it all happened in real time on national TV and that the senators on the jury were literally witnesses to it. And so along those lines, you had House Manager Jamie Raskin opening the trial yesterday with a very graphic 13-minute video that he said was a timeline of events both inside and outside of the Capitol. I will also be linking to this down below. It's a helpful video to remind yourself and uh, a video to send to someone anytime someone tries to minimize what happened on January 6th. I've seen a lot of people doing that, including a bunch of fuckface grifters here on YouTube. But it's this video that shows what happened and intersplices what Trump was saying. And uh, in fact, according to poll reporters that were present, some senators looking away while this video was playing with Raskin later closing by recounting his own experience that day in an emotional speech, where he also notably argued that even though Trump is out of office now, a president should be responsible for their speech from the first day they're in office to their last. The January exception is an invitation to our founders' worst nightmare. Right, and to insert my opinion here, I very much agree with that. The time from the election to when a president is no longer going to be president is normally considered a lame duck period of time. But if you proceed with this idea that you cannot hold the president accountable because they left office. That, that's insane. That changes a lame duck period to I can fuck everything up with no repercussions period. And so I just wanted to put that in there. But uh, then as far as Trump's lawyers, uh, they were, I would say, much less cohesive uh, in their argumentation is probably the nicest way to say it. In a move that is considered by some a massive mistake, Trump's legal team decided to let attorney Bruce Castor Jr. deliver the opening remarks for the defense. And during his nearly hour-long remarks, Castor took the senators down this winding path but largely ignored the constitutional question at hand and didn't appear to end in anything that could be considered an argument. In fact, a lot of his speech appeared to be entirely off the top of his head, including memorable remarks like, I'll be quite frank with you, we changed what we were going to do on account that we thought that the House manager's presentation was well done. I worked in this building 40 years ago. I got lost then, and I still do. I don't want to steal the thunder from the other lawyers, but Nebraska, you're going to hear, is quite a judicial thinking place. Though, very notably, Castor also acknowledged a few times that voters had chosen a new president and that Trump had in fact lost the election. Also, when I'm describing Castor's remarks here, understand it's not just my opinion. Castor's remarks were so bizarre that even some key Trump allies in the Senate acknowledge it was not a strong opening, which is probably why we're seeing headlines today like meandering performance by defense lawyers enrages Trump. Though, after Castor did whatever that was, Trump's other defense lawyer, David Schoen, took the stand and he actually did make some arguments. I'm not saying they are good arguments or I agree with them, but they are technically arguments. Saying it was unconstitutional to remove a president who had left office, that this was a partisan ploy, that Trump's speech was protected under the First Amendment. And so that is kind of the standout summary of day one. We, we should expect a continuation along those lines as we move forward. Though there is some new here with Raskin saying today that he will show previously unseen security footage. But after saying all of that, once again, as far as where this is gonna end up, I think most of us are on the same page. He's not gonna get convicted. If there was a secret anonymous vote, yes, 
maybe, but re Republicans have already made clear publicly where they stand. Right, Castor could go up there again and start talking about why Moneyball is his favorite movie ever. But also, I will say, this is not the only thing that Donald Trump is potentially having to deal with. This morning, for example, prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, officially launched an investigation into Trump's attempts to overturn the election in the state. And reportedly, among other things, that probe will look at the January 2nd phone call where Trump asked Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to, quote, find the number of votes he needed to reverse his loss. Telling Raffensperger, of course, he could explain it to the public by saying he had recalculated vote totals after two recounts had already been held. With it also being said that Trump vaguely threatened to criminally prosecute the Republican Secretary of State if he did not comply. In addition to that phone call, the inquiry will also look at other instances, including a call that Trump made to Georgia Governor Brian Kemp back in December, where he reportedly pressured him to hold a special legislative session to overturn the election outcome. And so with all this, in a letter that was sent to state officials from Fannie Willis, the newly elected Democratic District Attorney, she said that the inquiry will look into multiple possible violations of state law, including the solicitation of election fraud, the making of false statements to state and local governmental bodies, conspiracy, racketeering, violation of oath of office, and any involvement in violence or threats related to the elections administration. With this news, notably coming just two days after Raffensperger's office also launched an investigation into Trump's efforts. But notably with that one, while the inquiry can eventually be turned over to the state attorney general, it is simply a fact-finding mission and not a criminal probe. Right, and so the big thing here is Willis's decision, which, I mean, it's big on its own, but it's also notable because it makes Georgia the second state where Trump is facing a criminal investigation. With the first, of course, being New York, where the state attorney general is running an ongoing criminal fraud inquiry into his finances. And so with this and actually anything I covered today that stuck out to you, I'd love to know your thoughts in those comments down below because this is the end of the video. As always, thanks for being a part of my daily dives into the news, subscribe and like and all the good stuff. If you're looking for more to watch, remember I have that whole conversation and podcast with Belle Delphine or maybe you missed yesterday's show, you can click or tap right there or it's in the top description down below. But with that said, of course, as always, I love your faces and you've just been filled in with news that matters for people that care. I'll see you tomorrow.